Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Terror Talk. This is Shannon, and I am joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, and we are on part three of our Jeffrey Dahmer series. Hi, Kathy. Hi, how are you? Very good. I believe we're starting with Jeffrey and his grandma today. (laughs) I don't know why that sounds funny, but it does. It does, and I meant it to sound funny. I mean, we got to lighten it up a little. Where we left off, if people have been following the series, we, uh, you and I, uh, summarized the end of the second episode, talking about how he had really been, uh, after these first couple murders, he's learned to get away literally get away with murder and so there's been some enabling and reinforcement around that so the part what we're going to talk about tonight now is you know he's now home from the military um he was dishonorably discharged he was a homeless uh drunken mess when he got back to florida flies home his dad flies him back to cleveland and his murder sprees and these insatiable urges um start to increase so tonight we're going to kind of walk through that trajectory as well as look at some of the victim profiles of, of who he looked for um, as his victim. So one of the things I want to mention before I get into this part is reminding everyone who's listening that at this point in time now, he has zero protective factors left, meaning, and when we say protective factors, when people, when you do risk assessment in psychology, What we try to do is we try to make sure that there's more protective factors than risk factors. So, for example, um, if somebody has, you know, a history of substance abuse and impulse control, if they have a strong support system, that could be a protective factor. Right. Right. So the more protective factors we have, that's going to to make those risk factors less uh, impacting on the person's life. So what we know about Jeffrey at this point is he really has zero relationships and even the little support system he has, um, it's really, uh, it's pretty insignificant in the sense that his dad is there, but he and his dad are not super close. His dad has tried, but Jeffrey is, you know, really um, riddled with all of this stuff going on. And then he has his grandmother who's older and loves him, but also completely unaware of a lot of his problems, with the exception maybe of his drinking. So not a lot of protective factors going on. Um, he has, and then so you're coupling that with high risk factors, insatiable urges for murder, um, zero fear of consequence, and then really not a lot of conscience if he's, I mean, no conscience is if he's drinking. Um, He might have more of a conscience when he's sober, which is why he drinks, right? To to not feel anything. Um, And then also he's, this is all coupled with his internalized homophobia. So I want to sort of paint that so people understand maybe psychologically where he is going into this next phase. Fair. I also, I want to, you reminded me of something. I wanted to make sure to say that we're going to get into uh, details of the murders and some pretty serious pathology 
so you know trigger warnings basically so yeah some people else which is understandable yeah so you know we understand and maybe maybe try to skip along because we're going to go in and out of the details and talk yeah there's a there's a lot of other stuff outside of the details, but there right. will tonight and uh, or this show and the final show, we'll be talking a lot in detail about the murders. Thank you for remembering that. So at this point, Dahmer's now post-military. He he goes to live with his grandmother, and I think this was attempt an attempt again by Dad to say, you know, maybe if he lives with Grandma, he'll he'll start to take more responsibility. So. To his credit, he was actually able to quit drinking for a period of time. And I think we're talking months. I don't think we're talking, you know, crazy years. But for someone with this significant, um, this intense of a drinking problem, that was probably a lot of time for him. Yeah. Um, He starts going to church. And by going to church, he really tries to quit these homosexual urges. So if you think about, you know, we are in a different place in society now and this is changing but at that time all churches really spoke about homosexuality from the the viewpoint of sin Mm. um so this there wasn't a lot of leeway so if by going to church he was hoping that he could you know rid himself purge himself of what was viewed as this major sin at this point yeah he was trying to get saved he was trying to get saved exactly so yeah and, and you and I have talked about this a number of times, but the more someone tries to fight what they perceive as this dark side, the more intense this dark side starts to come out. Right. Um, did you want to say anything about that? Oh, I was just going to say, we've, we've talked about it on the show before, but if you're new to the show, it's the concept of, of the shadow, right? That we all, mm-hmm. we all have a shadowy side and, um, some are more obvious than others and not everyone investigates their shadow side. But mm-hmm. um, if we were to say that Dahmer's shadow side was this predator, then the more you try to deny it, to say you don't need help, that you know God can save you or alcohol can save you or what have you, the more he tried to brush it under the table and pretend it was who he was, the the more the shadow grows. And that's the same with you know, average pathology that we all have, you know. Right. And, and at that time, his homosexuality was also a shadow side as well, because he had not accepted it and he was trying to push it away. So yeah. yeah. Trying to deny it, right. Trying to deny it. So, um, so those two things together, he's trying to, you know, his most insatiable urges, he's hoping and praying can be taken away from him. Mm -hmm. Um, So he would try to distract himself by finding really odd jobs but after three years of, I guess it was three, maybe it was years. After three years, um, I don't know how long that was sobriety, but after three years of white knuckling his urges, mm-hmm. uh, his desires really start to become uncontrollable. So when we think about someone who, when you have to go against the grain of what is just completely organic for you, and you're not really really wanting it for the right reasons it is going to feel a lot of times people who have been through um sobriety versus recovery will talk about you know if you're truly in recovery you're not white knuckling it but if you're just sober and you're a dry drunk and you're not happy about recovery you might be white knuckling it and i think that this is that's sort of a metaphor for what was going on with him for over three years is he really wasn't invested in that outcome 
that he knew was what he thought he wanted or what the world wanted of him. Right. I think you bring up a great point that part of sobriety is, is the relational side, is Mm -hmm. the support system side, is the learning how to be better with people because so much of the time addicts and alcoholics have a very difficult time negotiating, navigating is actually the word I was thinking of navigating relationships. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, when most of the time what I see is when people are white knuckling, it means they're trying not to acknowledge that that's the piece that they're not doing. So right. It's like, Oh, I don't need AA because I'm just going to do it on my own. I don't need a therapist. I don't need medication. I don't need anything. I'm just going to white knuckle my way through it. Cause they're trying to say, I don't need help, which defeats sobriety in its entirety. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So <clears throat> he's working at, at a phlebotomist lab out of all places at this time. And, and the week before he's fired, he was charged with indecent exposure. So he had actually exposed himself to women and children at a Wisconsin state fair and fined $50 plus court fees. This guy's gotten away with so much. That has been a total theme of the true crime episodes we've done. How, I mean, can you imagine that now? He, and first of all, I think it's re- really off base to his, his uh, victim pool mm. to expose himself to, to women. And, and if you study or you've worked with sex offenders, uh, exposure is, it, it has really nothing to do with, um, I mean, there's an arousal piece of it, but it's also the shock, the control, the, there's so many other pieces to that because clearly women, women were not his, you know, he was not aroused by women nor were they his victim pool ever. Children on the other hand, maybe, but not women. So, okay. Yeah. But he gets fined 50. That's like a slap on the wrist at best. I know. What the hell is that? I don't know. So, um, so the thing about Dahmer was he was actually really into submissive partners Mm -hmm. and it's why he always liked to drug his partners. Mm -hmm. So he was really concerned about his needs being met. So if he had somebody, um, who was too dominant that he might not be able to control them. So he was concerned about the needs getting met without the concern of meeting the needs of his partners, which I think is, you know, not a shock, right? It's like, I don't really care about what you need. I need you to fulfill my needs. No, it's Um, domination with sadism as opposed to domination as a, as a game. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to say any more about that? Like the difference just so people understand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There are people that choose a lifestyle where there are roles played in in either the just the sexual arena or in the whole relationship where one partner plays a dominant role and one partner plays a submissive role and they call it all different kinds of different things but i'm using those as generic terms um and there's a generally a contract and agreements between those two partners and there's lots of rules in play there's a lot of respect there's um there's in fact what what you know is that the submissive is actually in charge because they're the one that sets the limits of what can and can't be done i mean there's a whole world that plays into that but it's consensual yeah it's consensual and in this situation obviously not consensual that's the one piece that takes it out of any kind of um well any kind of legal (laughs) or healthy let's put healthy in there Um, Mm -hmm. relationship that's consensual and agreed upon and then he's 
exercising his dominance, which people do in healthy um, dominant submissive relationships as well, but he's doing it without consent and he's doing it for sadistic reasons as opposed to for uh, pleasure and satisfaction of partner and relationship goals. Right, right. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that because there, there's a whole sexual world out there where that is not unhealthy, but this is truly not what we're talking about. We're talking nope. about someone who is... Um, clearly not asking for any sort of consent and, and, and in fact in preferred them to be um, non-consensual and unconscious to a certain extent. Yeah. So to the extreme. <laughs> yeah. Extreme opposite. So he did have a body type. It was long, lean and muscular. That was his type. Um, it, this is funny, but not his first victim was a store mannequin. Oh my. He, yeah. He stole it and he kept it in his closet. And he would masturbate on it until his grandmother found out and was like, what is this? And he's like, oh, yeah. And she's like, this needs to go. This is flipping weird. So he would keep that in his closet. And that was his partner for a while. Okay. Yep. Um, so he starts He starts going to gay clubs and bathhouses. Uh, bathhouses were really popular at that time. They're not so much anymore because people now use a lot of dating apps and things mm. um, where they can you know, get sex much quicker than going into a bathhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was meeting men. He was buying them drinks. He would he would dose the drinks with sleeping pills, and this was this was so this speaks so he- heavily on his profile. he would use the sleeping pills mostly due to the anger he would experience when they would move during sex. He did not want his part. It was like, can you just be unconscious and be still? You know, um, it, it really begs the question because when you said his first a partner was a mannequin and my one of my well my second or third thought besides ew um was why wasn't that good enough okay you know what i mean yes okay so we can table that i just wanted to throw that out there well this might help you help you here which is he would actually lay down next to them and listen to them breathe Mm. and it actually enjoyed listening and watching them pass out Okay, good. So that was my question. Thank you very yep. much. <laughs> so the clubs would naturally become his hunting grounds. Mm-hmm. So he's he now becomes known for fitting in at the clubs. And this, again, goes back to how much of this really was the schizotypal or, or schizoid, you know, because when he needed to be on and when he needed to be charming, he was able to be. He was, he was known for, for fitting in and being charismatic. And when he was there, when he was at the clubs, people reported that he never really appeared compulsive mm-hmm. and men actually found him attractive. So again, he had this enormous amount of control and ease and calmness when he would go into the clubs and he knew exactly what he needed to turn off and turn on to get his victims. Yeah. I mean, there was a certain amount of sophistication, right? Right. So nearly all of Dahmer's 17 victims were homosexual African-American men whom he subjected to torture and various sexual assaults. And his main objective for a victim was to gain his total submission, which led to Dahmer's proclivity for necrophilia, which we will talk about in the next episode. Okay. Um, But it's essentially having sex with someone who's dead or nearly dead. And we'll, we'll get there. Um, So as a way to try to control his urges, he would begin having sex with people who were, oh my God, who were recently buried. Mm-hmm. So this, imagine, this was very short-lived. He decided to unbury an 18-year-old boy who had passed the week before. 
But the only reason why he gave up this habit was he became tired after digging. I mean, that, that's six feet of dirt um, he would have to get through. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So you can that's see unsettling. how, how that's his sexual, that. sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that's really unsettling. It's really unsettling. And you can see how his sexual perversions are starting to increase over time. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who's worked with um, sexual predators, sexually violent predators, sex offenders, just like in any addiction, um, the, 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 in, the perversion or the intensity of, of whatever the addiction is or compulsion is, it has to increase over time in order for that person to feel satiated. Yeah, the cravings, right? And then, right. Yeah. And, and not bored. So, right. Um, right. So, yeah. So, his behavior to become more deviant, essentially, to and feel more satiated. What you're talking about. The cravings intensify and your tolerance increases. That's right. So, I think this is probably a good place to take our first break. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. So, when we get back, I believe you're going to go into some more I would be like the spree of it all like when his everything's really intense and he starts to really indulge all of this right yeah I'm gonna um yeah I'm gonna walk you guys sort of um into yeah his the beginning of his serious compulsions his trajectory okay we'll be right back after a break While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. a break this is Tara talk with shannon and kathy and we will continue with jeffrey's murder i guess right yeah so after he just before the spree starts after sex with corpses um he's actually arrested for masturbating in front of a 12 year old boy and finally charged with lewd and lascivious behavior mm-hmm. um so you know finally get something more than a slap on the wrist so the dialectical in all of this is his his conscience, if, if we can believe this. He did believe that strangling was the most humane way to kill his victims, but also the most powerful. So he would drink alcohol so his be- behavior would not be affected by his conscience. And then he would keep bodies for a week and have sex with them. And then after the decay, he would dismember them. Okay. So... He was clearly profiled as psychologically lonesome. I don't think that comes as any shock. Um, and he certainly wouldn't want his victims to leave even after their death. So the first um, really big case that starts this whole thing off is on September 15th, 1987. Dahmer murders uh, a man by the name of Stephen Tuomi in Milwaukee. T-U-O-M-I. I think I'm saying that right. After his murder, 
he decided he would never try and control an urge again. So the murder takes place at the Ambassador Hotel. He meets him at a gay bar in Milwaukee. I, I don't think he actually has the intention. Uh, maybe he does the, have the intention of murdering him, but he, has the, he certainly has the intention of drugging him and having sex with him. So Jeffrey rents a room, um, and it's only meant, uh, yeah, it's only meant to drug and, and rape him, not to minimize that. Oh, you only wanted to rape him. But considering this is Jeffrey, that's actually a step down. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But in the morning, he wakes up and he finds Tuomi bent over on his side, on his side of the bed with his chest crushed and bruises. Blood is seeping out of the corner of his mouth. And Jeffrey looks at his fists and they're bruised, and he could not remember that he had actually beat him to death. So he starts to panic, not because of his actions, but rather, how the hell was he going to get this body out of the hotel? So he, this is so crazy. Imagine being this calm to do this. He leaves the body in the room. He leaves the room. He goes and purchases a suitcase large enough to put the body in. He's lucky because the body hasn't yet gone into rigor mortis so he can manipulate the body in the case mm -hmm. he then puts it all in there zips it up or whatever he walks through the hotel lobby and even gets assistance from the cab driver who puts Tuomi's body in the trunk oh god so imagine this driver doesn't even know that he's carrying a, a body with a corpse in it but all just kind of calm and casual he's driven back to his grandmother's house and she's asleep. So he puts the, the case in the basement. And then he would use the corpse for his own sexual pleasure, pleasure before dissecting the remains. Yeah, I forgot he was still living with grandma. Still living with grandma. He just happened to be at a hotel that night. So Jeffrey certainly had a ritual. Um, obviously, we know from all the childhood stuff that he had an obsession with dissecting. So after he would dissect the body, he would separate the flesh from the bones and then he would crush the bones into powder before flushing them down the toilet. So if you remember back during the childhood episode, he learned to crush bones from his father. So I think that's an interesting piece. Is there something nostalgic about that? I don't know. Uh, does it connect him to his dad? I don't know. Um, Maybe all that. What's that? Maybe all that. Maybe all that. But he would keep the head and genitals, and he would actually... Um, he would bleach the head to preserve them, sometimes even the genitals, and then he would lock them in a box in his room. Mm -hmm. So bizarre. He would actually just cherish these things. And for a while, he had kept the skull of Tuomi until it became too brittle, and then he would have to dispose of it. He did this with several victims. These are the trophies. These are the trophies. So his grandmother is completely oblivious through all of this, but his father's suspicion starts to grow. So his father comes over one day and he demands Jeffrey to open the box, but Jeffrey refuses, which turns into an altercation. But he's able to divert his attention away and his father doesn't learn about the contents in the box until after his arrest at the very end of everything. Mm -hmm. So again, he finds a way to escape something. There's so many things <laughs> up till <laughs> now that he could have been done a long time ago yeah it's just yeah it's remarkable so yeah it's like given 
I mean, I don't know. We, we've seen that sort of theme in some, I think Bundy was a little bit the same too. Like there was just all these uh, right. 2020 hindsight with the justice system where it was like, oh, they could have, you know, <laughs> done the that right. there. But even like these small escapes, like the, the police and with the trash bags in the back of the car and, and distracting dad enough, those little just strokes of luck. Yes. That if just uh, anything changed that, I mean, my God. So, so this boy's case, this young man's case goes unresolved. After the ease of the second murder, Stephen told me, Jeffrey no longer has any desire to restrain himself and continues to feed his urges. So the, just like I was saying, the ease to which he gets away with all of this and covers up the body only enables him to, to continue to do more. Yes, right. It's all sort of a means to an end. I mean, I also see the practicality of all the things that he's doing. <clears throat> right. So I think we're going to stop again and then we're going to come back and get into um, just more of his victims. Okay, great. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. We just finished talking about Stephen Twomey, who is a, a really significant case in Dahmer's trajectory, as it was really the case that solidified he wasn't going to stop. Right. So when you say uh, like a, a marked case for him, you mean that it really was a beginning to end, like the worst thing he'd ever done? Kind of. Thing? I think it was a turning point in his conscience. Okay. I think at this point he was like, I've done enough that there's really no reason to go back. Like I'm never going to be able to clean this slate right. and it, this just feels too damn good. And I'm tired of feeling guilty about it. Yeah. Gotcha. And I think he saw the ease in finding victims. Yeah. And I read something somewhere where he talked about how, like if a person doesn't believe in God and I know, and he says that he didn't, um, that he believed in evolution, mm -hmm. but that if a person doesn't believe in God, then what's sort of, what's the point of modifying behavior? Right. Um, just because when we die, there's nothing. So I feel like this might be this murder or him just fully giving into his own finally, right? Like yes. he's keeping it all under wraps and then just finally giving into everything he's ever fantasized about. Right. Like this is really me and I'm tired of hiding it. Yeah, and then really that's how I feel. Profile, I imagine. Yes. Oh boy. So two months after Tommy, he he butchers uh, a young boy by the name of James uh, Dockstader, I think is how you say it. In 1988, he was 14 years old, and he was actually a, a boy who prostituted himself at a gay bar and agreed to go back home with Jeffrey to take um, nude pictures. And so they engage in sexual activity, um, and then. Jeffrey before Jeffrey drugs him and then eventually kills James. He buries the remains in his grandmother's basement and he ends up throwing everything but his head in the trash. So like you were saying before the break, this is where he starts to collect his, his trophies and yeah. also a piece of uh, I can keep some of you with me. Mm -hmm. So after this, he lures Richard Guero outside a gay bar in March of the same year. He offers him $50 for staying the night. He strangles him with a leather strap and after sexually violating his corpse, 
He dismantles his body in less than 48 hours, but again, keeping the head and disposing his remains in the trash. So he's just collecting skulls. Yeah, and I'm I'm not, I mean, I don't know, you, you've worked with uh, sexual predators way more than I have, and I just wonder, this, the, um, the raping of dead people, mm-hmm. uh, that seems very unique. It is. Most people, and I imagine in the community of sexual predators, that's a unique act, right? Absolutely, and, and one of the reasons why... Um, this and this is pretty gruesome and disgusting but right after somebody dies they actually soil themselves mm-hmm. um so there's there's urine there's feces i mean they're it's not really it's pretty gross um yeah, so there's a there's a kink in that yeah exactly so i think that people talk about necrophilia like it actually happens more than it actually does Yes, but my understanding, at least through my training and everything, is that it's it's quite rare. And I I didn't personally have any um, patients of mine who ever had that as a compulsion. Yeah, so that that's why I wanted to kind of point that out because that's my understanding as well. Is that within the the percentages of sexual predators that are out there, this isn't even this is like the smallest percent. It really is. It's, it's, it's super rare. And we'll talk a little bit about it in um, the next episode as far as what draws people to it. But yeah, it is, it's extremely rare. So this next murder, this is really crazy. Again, man, his strokes of luck on April 3rd, 1988, his killing spree almost ended. He was almost finally caught and done. He had taken a man by the name of Roland Flowers back to his house, drugs him, not knowing his grandmother's awake. Hmm. So she hears him come in, come home with a man and reminded him. So comes home with the man. The man is drugged in the room. Grandma sees Jeffrey in the hallway and reminds him, you know, I'm really uncomfortable with you having these visitors late at night. So now he's like, shit, my grandmother's awake. Do I continue this? So he has to make a decision whether to kill flowers or let him escape because he's just drugged at this point. Yeah. So he actually decides to spare his life by calling a cab to take flowers to the hospital for a drug overdose. Mm. When flowers wakes up, he goes ahead and charges Jeffrey with assault. But due to the overdose law enforcement and the hospital chalk it up to confusion and charge Jeffrey with a domestic tiff. Wow. So they actually say, you know, I think this guy was just confused. He had a lot of drugs in him. We can't really prove anything. So again, a slap on the wrist for an attempted murder. Yeah. Seems like a simple search of his house. Not that they had cause, but right. Would have, would have turned up some things. That's right. And that happens later much later when you think my god it should have happened by now so by the time september 1988 rolls around jeffrey's grandmother has had enough of these odd hours she's like i don't know what you've got going in there going on in there um but it's now starting to stink so Mm. there's this persistently wretched odor from from Dahmer's, you know quote-unquote experiments so he ends up moving um near the prime location of North 25th street in Milwaukee. He ends up moving out of grandma's and moves in by himself, which imagine now there's no restrictions. Yeah, I was going to say that was bound to happen eventually. Yep. So he's now full 
fully able to indulge in these fantasies without out any discretion at all. So the next night after he moves in, he lures a 13-year-old boy back to the apartment to take nude photos. So he drugs him. The boy becomes sick and tries to flee the apartment. Um, the boy's parents take him to the hospital. He gets away. Parents take him to the hospital. His stomach's pumped. The parents report Jeffrey. And again, he's only charged with drugging and assaulting a minor. So I realize you might, you might, this not, might not be part of your notes, but th- is this sort of like every weekend, every night? Like how at this, at this, this point, uh, the way that it, the, as, as far as, I mean, we know of, I think 17 murders, I believe. So I think some of these are, do go a month apart. I don't think this is every night or he would have. Now, I think he has more than 17 victims. I believe he has 17 murders. So I would imagine that there are probably a ton more in there that were either drugged and not killed or he decided to not kill. I'm uncertain about that. But the the ones that I'm talking about are the ones that either were were, um, with an attempt to murder or he actually succeeded in that. But I would imagine that he was doing a lot of stuff almost every single night. Right. And in hunting, maybe. And, yeah, it and could be just also, checking out a new club and sort of hunting, grooming. Well, and I'm thinking, too, like in my own head, I'm I'm kind of also remembering what you said about all the ritual of afterwards. You know, mm-hmm. he keep the body around for a week and then cut it up. And so all of that takes time. And, it's exhausting. And it does seem like he keeps he he mates in other words like he's in a relationship in his own mind absolutely for the week or whatever or the month i mean it takes a while it takes it first of all it's extremely exhausting to take the skin off to you know the, the all the ritual that he did i would say this is probably happening no more than once or twice a month okay um if if he fully goes through with the whole ordeal yeah it makes sense to me so now we're looking at, so that was, um, you know, in the fall, January of the following year, he's convicted with secondary sexual assault and enticing a child for immoral purposes. So he clearly had a, a, a pedophilic, you know, nature to him as well. He, well, he wasn't just into adults. He was clearly um, was into either pubescent or prepubescent boys. But the sentencing is put off until May. So it happens January, sentencing's put off till May. So he's then forced to move back into his grandmother's house because they probably request supervision. She expects well, I'm, that- I'm sorry. I'm, no, I'm, just, I'm just struck by the fact that, like, he got caught. Right. Finally, right? Like, mm-hmm. I realized there were some offenses early on and he got kicked out of the military for some... I'm, I would imagine for some of this behavior, but he's actually, he actually got caught doing something. And That's I guess right. somebody must've gotten away or something. Um, I would imagine, let's see, Jen, um, this, just, well, this child, he, this child was sexually assaulted. So most likely reported this. Yeah. He didn't, he just, he didn't kill them. He didn't so. kill, he didn't kill him, but it, it's starting to now drop more attention you would think at this point with the record of exposure and and prostitution and all of this lewd and lascivious stuff that this would just be so much heavier but he goes he ends up going back to grandma's she expects him to stop drinking and bringing men back to the house but let's be real he has no intention of doing that so 
his next victim is a man by the name of Anthony Sears. He's a 24-year-old African-American aspiring model. Jeffrey lures him back to the house where he's uh, drugged and, and strangled. Um, now, remember, this is all while he's waiting for the sentencing. Mm-hmm. Okay? And he's still just going. The next morning, he drags him into his grandmother's bathtub. I mean, he's at this point, he just doesn't give a fuck. He gives zero fucks. Mm-hmm. He decapitates him before disposing the body and, and finding Sears um, very attractive. This was actually his first victim. He prematurely preserved any body parts. Oh, boy. Right. So um, he preserves Sears' head and genitalia in acetone, and he stores them in his work locker. Mm-hmm. He's just got shit everywhere at this point. Yeah. Mm. So two months after... Sears murder, he's now sentenced to five years probation and corrections for this child thing that happened in January. Mm-hmm. Part of his plea bargain is meant it meant um, he had to he had a work release permit. So he was able to keep his job, but had to register as a sex offender. Wow. So, right. So he would go to work each day and then go back to jail at night. Good Lord. Right. So he's released early from his sentence and no longer is viewed as a threat to the community. Imagine he is no he's released early and no longer viewed as a threat to the community and moves back in with his grandmother before moving into Oxford Apartments. So I want to say a couple things about this. First of all, who the hell did this risk assessment? Mm. Second of all, um, I do believe at this time, I, I, I'm not sure if this is the first time, it may be later on, that he would write these letters to the judge um, and, and with such a calm, apologetic, you know, I, I mean to do well, kind of very charming that way. And I can't remember if this was one of the cases that he did that. Yeah, um, that's interesting because, I mean, at least in our conversations so far, very we've talked very little about the fact that he was probably had a charming side <laughs> right so then because these men come back with him willingly absolutely so. he, he he knows how to do this so then because he's let out of jail and he don't no longer has his job he takes sears remains into his new home so now yeah. he's in his own apartment again so after serving 10 months of a 12-month sentence for sexual assault he continues to waste no time He murders Raymond Smith in July of 1990. He buys a Polaroid camera and starts taking pictures of Smith's corpse. And then he places Smith's skull next to Sears. So now he's really starting to build an altar. Collection. Yes. Hmm. So he now has Ernest Miller and David Thomas in September. Jeffrey realizes that he's not at all attracted to Thomas and he views the murder as a waste, but he knows there's no going back. So he has to continue his work. He discards of all of his body parts. He does not keep his head because he's not attracted. He thinks it's a waste. He's disappointed. And because of this disappointment, and we can probably talk about the shame around this, he actually stops killing for five months. Wow. Because he feels he didn't, pick the right vi- victim he was completely disappointed and it was such a waste of his time and he went ahead and dismembered this whole body and was not at all attached to it and so he stops for five months wow so during this time this latency period he starts to begin an altar with all this almost like he's got all these toys now 
and these collector's items that since he's not murdering, he starts to build this altar with all the skulls of his victims. He starts to become obsessed with the film, The Exorcist Three, and feels very connected to it. There's something in that movie that's related to that. I can't remember what it was. Um, and then Curtis Strotter in February, 1991, after those five months becomes his next victim. And he goes ahead and he dismembers his body. He keeps his head and he puts it in the refrigerator. You know, I'm struck by the the break in killing, and I and I know we were talking. You were mentioning shame and mm -hmm. narcissistic shame because he's gotten quite narcissistic with his ability to kill and get away with things. And I would imagine his skill set, you know, in his world, the skills he needed to do all of the things he was doing, was quite um, excellent at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he had a, had a pride and a narcissism around that mm -hmm. and then the aim of screwing one up mm -hmm. basically. But then what happens with the shame spiral is then the depression. So I have a feeling he was depressed for five months. I, I, like, I completely agree. I think yeah. he went into a complete, um, I'm dropping the word that I want to use, but, but in a, almost like a, a destructive state where he yeah. completely shut down yeah and was depressed yeah and and i imagine the drinking got pretty bad probably yeah. i mean he he drank the whole time I'm, I'm i'm also struck by the fact that he's working this whole time yeah like keeping a job working mm -hmm. going he, to work going home you can imagine saying hello to people i mean mm -hmm. you know like he's because because what I'm thinking about is I'm thinking about how Manson and Bundy were at, at, at points. Well, Manson ne never really, but like, uh, I don't know. I don't remember Bundy being, having, you know, a, a job and being a part of society really, but. No, you know, he just charmed his way and used everybody. He was, he was our, um, he was definitely our pathological narcissist in, in that way where he just knew yes. how to use people to get what he wanted. Yeah, so that's a unique thing to point out, right? That this guy, different from them, because there's similarities and differences, but his the ick factor is super high with what Jeffrey did. Um, in fact, like way beyond the bounds of, of what I would say most people engage in in criminal activity. Mm -hmm. And yet he's the one out of those three that had a job. And had a grandma that cared about him, you know, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. the, the dialectic, as you said before, like the dialectic of that, the, and I'm just, I'm also aware of how we've been mentioning, uh, you know, a borderline condition and the split and mm -hmm. that's a representation of the split that mm -hmm. was going on in him. And also, like you've said, like the, 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 the self-loathing with mm -hmm. the narcissism, I mean, just like the splits are so apparent. Yeah. And it's funny. It wasn't until I really started walking through this because borderline personality disorder was one of the disorders that they had as a, as a rule out or, or differential. Oh, yeah. And, okay. and a lot of people, when I first read about Dahmer, I was like, no way. I, I don't see that at all. Um, and I don't think he has, I don't think he fit meets the full criteria, but I certainly think there are borderline traits there. Yeah, that's why I keep saying conditioned. Exactly. I'm not saying the disorder. No, and then that's why I, I agree with you. I think that there are those borderline conditions there and the splitting 
is certainly one of them. The abandonment is another one, just not enough to warrant like a full diagnosis, but it's there. It's certainly there. Yeah. I can, I can see it as a secondary, um, just because the the other stuff just takes precedence, you know, and, right. and for those of you who don't know, it's in diagnosing you, you, you know, you list things in order of importance, like what you want the medication or the treatment to target. And so this would be sort of the least of his worries, but I also see it as a, as a personality, I guess, specialist or whatever you want to call it. We, Kathy and I both have our, have our niches within the field. And one of the things I'm definitely into is personality structure. And I often see cases from, from the, from that lens of personality. So that's why I keep sort of hearing this like personality mm-hmm. orientation, of the split, sure. the borderline and all that. Yeah, for sure. So that's where we're going to stop tonight. Great. Well, Hey, look, there I was wrapping it up and I didn't even know it. Look at that. <laughs> Oh, I just had to like laugh a minute because that was really disturbing. Okay. Yeah. But, um, you know, not shocking because a lot of us know the details, but, um, but to be taken through it like that is always a little bit of a, it weighs a little heavy. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so everyone knows this is part three of a four part series on Jeffrey Dahmer. We're going to end it here for now. And then next Wednesday, you'll hear the fourth and final part of this. But also don't forget that we have a companion show that uh, drops on Fridays. So um, that's a different kind of show. So check that out um, while you're waiting for the next one. And that's about it. Uh, This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.